You are listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 47, and I'm Brandon. And I'm Allison. And this week, we thought we would follow up a little bit on a few episode, a couple episodes ago where we were talking about Napoleon and pressure cookers and canning, and we pretty much had the basic idea, but we thought we'd follow up on that and, and kind of just spend an episode on the differences between canning and fermenting. Yeah, and I think if, I think it was two episodes ago. Um, we again briefly mentioned it, but um, I afterwards I took some time and was researching more about it, and I found it to be pretty interesting. But we'll get into more detail um, later because I think that you have a few articles you want to share with us. Yeah, just a few things that uh, wrap up December's kind of news articles or, or whatnot, but also something else. Uh, if you're familiar with the people uh, behind Ideas and Food that do a lot of modern cooking and, and things on focused on fermentation, it's a great blog and they also have a couple of cookbooks and different things. You should definitely check out Ideas and Food if you haven't, but they're doing, if you're in the Chicago area, they're doing an Ideas in Ideas 2.0 workshops uh, where it, it, a Sunday and a Monday, January 19th and January 20th, I just ran into this because on Monday, January 20th, they're doing a fermentation workshop from 10 to 1230. That seems pretty cool. And you could also stick around for cooking with liquid nitrogen after that. And just a lot of different things. I, I'm assuming that everything that comes out of the ideas in food blog that um, is awesome and interesting or novel. And so I think that I would at least hope that their fermentation would also be an interesting workshop to, to go to. And, and so I'll put that in the show notes, a link to that. It's worth checking out if you're in the area and available during a weekday. Yeah, I think um, besides the fermentation seminar on the 20th, that liquid nitrogen sounds fun too. Isn't there a, I don't know if you know this or not, if there's a restaurant that uses only liquid nitrogen to cook their food? I, I want to say there is one in Chicago, but I could be wrong. I would not be surprised. No, I but I wouldn't be surprised with all this modernist cuisine and, and um what is it? Molecular gastronomy. I I wouldn't be surprised. And, and it, this, this chef Talbot is using the uh, sous vide and liquid nitrogen and different things. I'm assuming in his kitchen restaurant, I don't even know what kind of restaurant it is. I think it's supposed to be a little bit different, it, but it's at L ideas, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've, I haven't heard of that one, but if there is one that only cooks with liquid nitrogen and once I look into liquid nitrogen a little bit more, Maybe I'll have to try and research that because that's not too far away from, from me here in Madison. No. And that fermentation one, depending on what they're talking about, again, it's probably new novel things, but that it, I, you know, you can never sit through too many sauerkraut intros, in my opinion. You always learn something new. So, And I'm assuming they've got to be doing a little bit more with fermentation. I, I don't, again, I don't know in a two and a half hour course what they're going to do, but uh, just recently I saw on their blog that they put up a kimchi crepe, which was kind of a nice little thing because I've, I've done kimchi pancakes and different things like that, but I never thought of, again, this isn't super mind blowing, but I hadn't thought of, you know, blending all the ingredients together along with the kimchi for crepes in a food processor and then straining that so that it is still smooth and can be a crepe as opposed to, you know, pancakes. It's okay if, you know, it's not completely smooth, but, mm -hmm. uh, but straining out those solids, and I guess composting, feeding to animals or doing something else, maybe cooking with it, maybe. But uh, but still, I mean, kimchi crepes, they look kind of pretty. And it's a nice way to put fermentation into something that otherwise it's difficult to make crepes unless that batter is pretty smooth. Yeah. So it would mostly be like a savory 
crepe that you'd be creating, right? I would think so, but I guess a person could use like a, I mean, it'd still be somewhat savory, but like a fruit kimchi that's like a little bit on the sweeter side or a little less of that, or, or you kind of go with a, a hybrid of, I will have I to could... get back to you. I mean, I'll try, so I, I don't think I would do anything like a, a hazelnut chocolate spread or anything like that, but maybe, maybe you could get away with like a little, little something sweet, like a, some cultured whipped cream or something on top. Yeah. I'm sure that there's some, some way that you can you know, combine the spiciness and uh, savoriness and also some sweetness because there's a lot of, you know, savory, salty, um, sweet combinations that you we probably haven't even thought of yet that, you know, other people really enjoy. Oh, yeah. And I'll remember to put that kimchi thing. I'll put that recipe in the show notes as well because people should definitely try it. I, I'm going to try it soon. And going on, though, to the another topic that was interesting that was a article in the Boston magazine by Ben Wolf, who I'll put the link in the show notes for an interview. You can listen to him. He's the, one of the um, people at Harvard that is studying cheese rinds. Well, he just recently put out an article regarding bacteria in sea salt and naturally processed sea salts that are full of, or at least have a decent amount of, of bacteria that can, can multiply. And then the question would be, if these natural sea salts are being used for cheese rind washes or for fermenting vegetables or anything else, are, are those bacteria also affecting the, the cheese? Because this cheese, the reason why he even looked into it at all and started doing Petri dishes of some of these, uh, these sea salts was because there were, as they're studying cheese rinds, they're seeing bacteria that are prevalent in seawaters in these cheese rinds but there was, they weren't inoculated with those or anything, but it's from the washing, most likely from the washing with these, uh, these sea salt brines. And so it's, it's kind of fascinating. And you can look at that and see some different photos of, of Petri dishes and seeing that they are growing. I don't know if you had a chance to look at those, those images. I mean, does it look like there's that much activity in them? Is that a lot? Is that a little? Oh, I'd say that's a lot in all of them. I mean, I'm looking at the photo right now and the um, one that is the second one to the left, you can't even see the the, the media, which is the, um, the jelly stuff that's on the Petri dish. You can't even see that because it's just full of colonies. Um, whereas the one on the far right, you can tell that there's two distinctly two different types of colonies, but they're not in such a high concentration as the, you know, the one on the the second left one. But I I just right above that the pictures he mentions that the very minimally processed had the highest number of bacteria versus the ones um that were more finely grained, which I thought was it makes sense that ones that had less minimally, minimally processed salts um have the higher bacterial load than the finer ones, but it's kind of interesting that um that it's even that even mentions it. Um, but it's a good point to write that in science. Um, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's interesting. There are these bacteria. I guess I was surprised because thinking of salt, it's something that yes, there are bacteria that like salt or that can, can grow to in abundance in salts, like many lactic acid bacteria and others. It's not something that generally thinking of being able to survive in such a, a dense population of salt plus processing plus everything else and then and then end up in this. But they these are halophilic salt loving 
bacteria that have also are also tolerant enough of the processing. Again, like you're saying, the minimally processed ones, but still they're, they're able to, to survive. And these, these Petri dishes look a lot. It looks like they're, they're still from my only experience with Petri dishes really being in uh, elementary school and testing, taking swabs of a bunch of different places like cafeteria plates and water fountains and different things like that. I mean, those things were all kinds of growth everywhere. These seem pretty like, like one or two bacteria uh, growing on these different plates. Would you say that that looks like it's about what it is or the two main ones or one main one? I'd say there's two main ones. Now each plate looks like they have different types of bacteria on each individual one. Like if you compare, if you number them one through four from left to right, you can say the first plate, number one, has they. It, it could be that there's so many of them that they're small um, versus the third one, but you can tell that there is a difference between those two just because of size and slightly through color. But, um, or even the fourth one where there's two different colors and two different types of colonies on it. So I'm sure that if he even took this further and I identified them, you know, he may find that they're the same or they, that he has four or five different types of colonies that specifically grow on that specific type of salt. That would be kind of interesting to see if it, if there is a specific strain of bacteria that survives better on certain ty- types of salts than others regionally where they're from. And then to see how those might be affecting anything. I mean, even, uh, even in the article, it mentions Sander Katz, when uh when ben told him about that he was excited about the what that might mean for vegetable fermentation the understanding of how things ferment uh, because i mean sander katz is one that's definitely written about talked about using any kind of salt really works sure non-iodized iodized works better in a lot of ways or or might be uh better to use but at the same time he says he's used iodized non-iodized uh, sea salt uh, processed, uh, manufactured salt. So he's, he's really one to say, use whatever salt you can get. And yeah, sea salt's nice, but now it looks like, well, what is it actually doing to the fermentation that may be different? It's something to consider at least. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I'm sure it makes a huge difference. Um, and but just browsing through this article, I'm interested to finish it and figure out if he did specifically say, yes, there is a difference or not. Yeah, we will uh, we'll follow up if there's anything more about that. And just one other thing I wanted to squeeze in here because it's uh, in nature. Harold McGee had a nice little write up about about fermentation, and uh, the article in here goes over all the different aspects of the different kinds of fermentation. A lot of the things we've we've covered in some ways or another. It's just nice way to wrap up the year, start this new year, and and refreshing all of these these aspects. And it at the end there was even mention of of that uh, beer beard beer that you had talked about a few episodes ago as well. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool that they mention it um, because I had a little bit of some hands in in that project of helping find this beard yeast. Um, And it's just really funny how you can find cultures of bacteria or yeast to create different types of foods. Again, it all comes back to food and creating different flavors and flavor profiles and people experimenting with it now, I think, more than ever. Um, and I, I, even though I knew that the beard yeast existed, I was told by so many brew shops, um, at least here in San Diego, that the beer was – the actual beer itself was an urban, urban legend. Like it didn't exist. 
Um, but I recently found it at a, at a beer shop and I got really excited and I bought about a bottle and my husband and I shared it and it is really good. Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's sour beer. Um, cause I'm not a big fan of sour beers, but it was, it still had like that beer flavor, but a little bit of funkiness to it that it was really pleasant. I really liked it. And if anyone can find it in their home brew shop, so I think you can, I think I came home and looked on it online and you can buy it online too and have it shipped to your house if you can't find it locally. And it's, it's rogue, rogue ales or something like that. Uh, yeah. Rogue ales. Um, and they're in Newport, Oregon. Yeah. It looks like um, six seventy five here on online for, I don't know what, but you can get, you can get one of one beer or a pack, or I don't know what it is, but for six seventy five. Yeah. And, um, I'll put that in the show notes. It's really good. Um, but it's funny how they even talk about arm, the armpit cheese or the toe cheese that we had mentioned from Christina. Um, Aga, I, I'm going to mispronounce her name. Um, Aga Packy, Packus. Um, we'll, how, we'll go with that. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry if I totally mispronounced your name and botched it. Um, but how sh- his article even mentions that too with the, with the, um, foot cheese and the armpit cheese. Go read the article. It's, it's, it's worth reading even if you know everything about everything that's there and it's a nice introduction to fermentation and, uh, and it's Harold McGee. I mean, he's an awesome guy with his book on cooking and all the other, or no, what is his book? Now I'm completely botched it. Harold McGee, the, uh, on, on chemistry, a festive ferment. Wait, what? Isn't that that's the name of the article? No, what's the what's the book he? Uh, oh, now I'm completely uh, on cooking. Of the, come on, what did Harold? Uh, Curious cook? No, we're not on on food and cooking. Sorry, I knew I was forgetting oh. something. Sorry, the science and lore of the kitchen. That oh, there, was yeah. that. That if you haven't read that book, you should definitely read it. I mean, yeah, even if you go to his uh, Wikipedia page, which helped me out just now with my complete brain freeze, you can see him a picture of him tasting Schurstroming um, right here on this page. So it all it all just links back to Harold McGee. I mean, he he really did change a lot of the aspects of looking at at cooking and science, and it really was. I mean, nineteen eighty four. I mean, was one of those pivotal books that really started connecting people, at least the home cook on a lot of different scales. And, and definitely I think in the culinary world as well, about like looking more at the science aspects. It's a great book if you haven't read it. Yeah. I've, I've uh, dabbled and read a few, a few chapters in it and it's, it's really interesting and good. Um, and I would recommend it to anyone too. And so would you at the same time recommend people start canning? I would. I, like canning i are you a canner um i am i did a lot of um like pressure canning with um high acid foods when i was little with my with my dad um but now i mostly just kind of do um the low um acid no i'm sorry the high acid foods where it's like the tomatoes and um, the jams and the preserves and the jellies and that sort of thing. The things that but, are relatively safe and really hard to screw up, kind of like fermentation. Yeah, a lot of that kind of stuff. And it doesn't take as much time as um, pressure cooking canning, but um, but it's still fun. Um, I don't like it as much as 
fermenting, but I still like doing it. I mean, I have all the equipment and sometimes, um, you know, it's just nice to have those common necessities like jams in your house. Yeah. And I think for myself, like I've never really gotten into canning and I've in trying to research this, this topic, it's thinking about it. It's like, well, what is it about? What are the differences with canning and and fermentation and, and what are the, why, why is it that I like fermentation or am drawn to fermentation as a form of preservation over canning? And so we'll kind of go into that kind of as we go through, but I guess stepping back, what are, what is canning? And then we can step back to that contest in the couple episodes ago that you were talking about Napoleon through too. I mean, what's yeah, that? So, so we were kind of right. Um, in two episodes ago when we were talking about the ginger beer plant and that came around with, well, how did canning all come about? And, um, Louis Pasteur and all of these kind of unknowns that we were guessing about. So, but we were pretty much on par with, I'd say 75%. So, I mean, we, we did pretty well, but, um, you know, I did a lot of research and after the show and, um, came up with a lot of really interesting stuff, a lot of facts and numbers. Um, but, um, it was in 1795 when the French military, so not necessarily Napoleon, but under his, you know, regime, the military offered a cash prize of, uh, 12,000 francs for a new method for preserving food. And that was because they were conquering such a wide area of um, land that they, and they were gone for such a long period of time. Like some people, some soldiers would be gone for months on end and it would be in the winter and they wouldn't have any food because, you know, it's the winter, it's cold. There's not anything really available. And they needed something different from fermentation. Um, I don't know, just for a change and, taste and foods or ease of carrying food. I'm not quite sure. I didn't really find any sort of answer to that. But um, he, the French military offered this prize, this cash prize for figuring out this new preservation method. And the, that cash prize, it, sure, it, it, it may not be that much by contest standards of today, but I, I mean, 12,000 francs being offered for a way to preserve food for the, the military was probably a pretty big thing for most people back then because trying to do a rough calculation, given that francs aren't available anymore, but basing it off of the 2005 value of the exchange of franc to euro to US dollar and then accounting for inflation, we're talking about, you know, a 46000 to uh, $50,000 cash prize to the person that can do this. And and the the really important thing to understand about like something like this is that Food was very important for a fighting army. I mean, obviously it's important to survive, but especially when uh, troops are far off from their homeland. I mean, that like throughout history, there's been times when people have not been able to, I mean, the, the, the military strength was partly dictated by their, their supply lines. How could they get the, the food to the troops? How could they get the, uh, the, the weapons and everything else? How could they transport those things. And, and a lot of times it was just what they could carry or what they could, could keep with them. And there's a lot of things that just don't preserve. And I don't know how much they were using fermentation or, or fermented vegetables or anything like that. I I mean, I'm sure they were probably to a certain extent, maybe having carrying some alcohol at different points 
Um, but I mean, that's where, that's where some other, you know, armies were, were really good at surviving. Like the Mongols were probably some of the best and it's slightly off topic, but not really because like they used horses and everything else and they'd, they'd ride their horses, they'd eat their horses and they'd ferment the milk from it and get kumis. I mean, everything was around the horse really in a lot of ways. I mean, they, they fought on their horses, they did everything, but you know, and, and possible cannibalism might've helped too, but their food supply lines were really strong because they took everything with them and they would you know, rape and pillage and take everything that they needed as well. And, um, and that made them a really strong conquering army that totally changed a lot of aspects. And so Napoleon wanting those same kind of things or the French military, I mean, it would, it, it really was looking for something that could give them a big upper hand at a point when it wasn't necessarily that easy to fight distant wars. Exactly. And I mean, you don't really know where you're going to be. And so um, in the winter, and you can't really plan on having gardens and that sort of thing. Um, So it made sense for them to try to figure out a new way to preserve food. And so since when this contest was um, established in 1795, I'm sure a lot of people submitted ideas. um, But it wasn't until this man, this French man named Nicholas Apart, um, who had been doing a lot of research, um, came up with this idea of canning and the process was first proven um, through, I think it took him 14 to 15 years to perfect this process that he developed um, and showed it in front of, you know, conducted it in front of the French Navy. And so he won, he won this whole, this, you know, the $50,000 for this new novel idea for preserving food. Um, And and he he Oh, go on. Well, he didn't even know what this, this, why it was working. He just knew that it worked by sealing things in jars. He knew it because it wasn't uh, until later in the the second half of the 1800s that Louis Pasteur discovered the ideas of the microbes and in, in food rotting and fermentation and all those aspects. So it worked, but he didn't know why. Um, but it did. And, and, and we're, I, as far as I understand, and, and maybe your research show different, we're talking about low acid or high acid canning at that point, or maybe they were canning other things than high acids and just taking more risk because they didn't understand why it worked, but they weren't, this was not pressure cooking yet. No, it was just, um, long sustained boiling. They knew again, I, I guess I shouldn't say they, he knew cause he didn't really know, but he knew that if he, if he boiled whatever it was for a very long time, it would, be shelf stable for a very long time. And again, he didn't understand or didn't even know that the idea of microbes didn't even exist in the early 1800s. Um, but he proved that it worked and that there was food that he could still, people could still eat, you know, during the, during the French revolution and the Napoleonic wars and stuff that it was fine. But yeah, because Louis Pasteur didn't discover microbes or even have an inkling of an idea of this until 50 years after um, Nicholas Apart won this war. Um, so it's just kind of cool that even though Nicholas Apart didn't completely understand why it was happening, but he knew that it worked. And it, and it worked and obviously enough to win, win the prize and, and everything like that. I mean, at least assume he got it. Um, I don't know how they, how they give that out if they give it all in one lump sum or kind of ease it out over years to come, but either way he got the award, but it wasn't necessarily a perfect, set up for military because we're talking glass that's sealed in 
containers with wax or other aspects. I don't know exactly how he was specifically doing it, but that's kind of how it went around for a while. And, and then later they came up or using wrought iron canisters uh, so that it wouldn't break in, in the military conditions of transporting these things and, uh, and then lined it with tin. And then, um, then eventually they, they started using these tin canisters that then became the terminology for, uh, for canning, for putting it in a can because we still call it canning today, but well, there is the large scale canning, which obviously things are still coming in cans, but most of the stuff people are doing at home, they're doing in glass jars. So would that be glass jarring? Yeah, I guess it'd be glass drawing. Maybe I don't. I maybe weird. Maybe um, Nicholas Apart used a different word instead of canning. Yeah, we well, I'm assuming kind of it probably he... didn't. I wonder too. I don't know ex- because it wasn't until a little bit later that this. I don't know if this trickled down to other armies anytime soon after. But for the most part, this was a pretty uh, military based operation kind of thing to do because it wasn't necessarily it obviously it, it wasn't definitely wasn't as easy as um, home canning is uh, today with having mason jars um, but it's uh, or even as easy it is to do pressure cooking with low acid foods as it is today to do in the home I mean back then I mean it was a decent amount of work and even once they switched to tin they didn't have can openers so they were using knives or or rocks to try and open these things so it really wasn't a perfect system but it worked it got them food it got them what they needed i mean and it still wasn't until the i don't know closer to the 1900s when home canning started becoming more widespread but even still then it is as far as i understand it was still something that was more for the well-to-do and otherwise it wasn't necessarily the 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 typical farmer or different things that were kind of the last ones to to hold on to it uh this this tradition of canning before uh, before it's once again become uh, much more popular again. But yeah, I think I think um, home canning it, it may have been really popular with the well-to-do when it first came about because maybe it was just really expensive because you needed glass jars and you needed a, you know specialized equipment to be able to do this glass canning. Um, but I know that a lot of people, I don't know when, again, it's probably around the 1900s that or the 20th century that you mentioned, it became a huge part of society and a lot of people started doing it. So I don't know where that, the, that change happened um, because it was a great, once they perfected it, that it became such a great way to preserve your, you know, summer harvest or your summer food and your harvest. Well, yeah, and it definitely became a lot easier as soon as, what's the date? 1958 uh, was when a uh, New Jersey Scottish farmer, uh, John Landis Mason, he, he patented the first jar. He didn't actually make any money from it because he gave it away the, the patent away to a company, but he was the first one to create the the jar the way that it has the separate lids that um, aren't necessarily really necessary for fermentation, but how there's the, the two, two lids and that works because before that it was, you know, like a ceiling, like a, oftentimes, as far as I understand, it was tin, a tin lid that was sealed with wax and then it couldn't be reused. And, you know, wax is messy enough as it is. If a person's done any cheese making, it's sort of messy at least. And so that made it a lot easier, but even still that's when it was patented. So it wasn't until later. And I think it wasn't until after world war two, that it started really becoming something 
used a part of human or not human, but everyday people, I think, started using it then, which would make sense because, you know, it was wartime again and people needed to preserve their food. Um, the world wars, they just they have had so many shifting effects, food and otherwise. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I mean, you know, I found this just interesting from a food scientist perspective. I remember hearing or learning about a part when I was in school, but I kind of forgot about him. Um, but he really did revolutionize and just completely change how we preserve foods. And cause before then it was mostly through drying and, you know, fermentation. Um, but to completely kill off all of the bacteria and yeasts and, um, mold, um, through this process, he developed this long period of boiling, um, re- I mean, completely changed the, the face of the world and what we do. And when you go to the grocery store, I mean, look how, how much canned food is in the grocery store nowadays. Well, and so then you, you bring up a point too, about how, you know, this long process of, in order being able to, to, to kill off everything that's in it. It's funny how that was in that time period. And then we're talking 1679. Isn't that when the pressure cooker was invented? And so the idea of nowadays, when you were talking low acid foods versus high acid foods, high acid foods, you can boil low acid foods. You need a pressure cooker in order to rule out issues of uh, potential uh, botulism or other spores that can last for long periods in, in high heat. Yeah. And it was, it was developed by this French physicist. His name's Dennis Papin. Um, and he, well, he called it the steam digester. Um, but basically it was like the precursor to the modern day pressure cooker. Um, but it's a, the idea of the process, him and um, a part kind of did the same thing, but Papin's design sped up the process. Um, I don't, I don't know how long because I we don't really know how long a part would boil all of his food until he deemed it sterile or cl- clean enough to eat. But a part you can, um, or I'm sorry, with Papin's design with the pressure cooker, it only takes what maybe an hour, two hours depending on the food and how much food and the size of the can and all sorts of um, different dimensions and that sort of thing. Yeah. And again, he was going for faster cooking as opposed to uh, sterilization. And, and that's really when things kind of cross paths eventually. I mean, really Papin, I mean, well, yeah, it was a French physicist that did the steam digester. And so, you know, they, they should have crossed paths a little bit more maybe. And then uh, kind of joined up then and then they would have had a lot more efficient of a system but back then again he was looking at faster cooking which is also a canning's become a lot more popular a resurgence in popularity and also pressure cooking itself has become much more uh, popular because you know at one point i always kind of thought as a pressure cooker is really used for canning for the most part or I'd see them at thrift stores or, or the smaller versions or whatnot but now there's all kinds of cookbooks out and and people writing about using pressure cookers as a way of cooking things faster. Um, and, and so two separate things that I kind of lumped together a lot of times, um, before. And, uh, I kind of like the, the term steam digester. I think, uh, I think we should go back to that. It's like, I got a steam digester. I'm going to pull out for my glass jarring. 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting term. I'm not quite sure how the digester got in there, but the steam makes sense. Yeah, I mean. there's there's steam. <laughs> but yeah, the digester is totally, I mean, that's like out of left field in my mind. Um, Digesting, but- we digest food, fermentation pre-digests, steam cooks, and cooking is maybe a form of pre-digestion. Maybe, yep. I mean, that kind of makes sense in my mind. Uh, well, it's but- it's holding the steam in, so it's digesting the steam. And oh, I, would that okay. work? Yeah, maybe I mean, it doesn't, work. It doesn't hold. Does it hold this all? This, I mean, it releases some to to get to like fifteen psi or whatnot, right? Or or is all the steam contained? I think that there. I mean, I haven't used a pressure cooker in a long time, but I'm just thinking back to when I was little and I was in the kitchen with my dad using a pressure cooker, um, because I. I know there some of the, the steam does escape. There is a very small hole. At like the that top. little valve thing, right? Um, well, you have, or at least ours, I mean, and what I would suggest to anyone who wants to buy a pressure cooker because they have digital ones and um, nowadays, and they also have ones with um, gauges on it. But those don't, in my opinion, and talking to my dad about this, he says that he doesn't like using those. He likes the one with the actual weight on top because um gauges kind of you have to calibrate them and they might be faulty um they may not work right so you can't guarantee that you're going to get that kind of pressure and when you're dealing with low acid foods like green beans and potatoes and um those types of foods and you have the problem or the possibility of botulism you really need to make sure that you do it right um and so he has always told me to always use a pressure cooker with a weight on top. Um, anyway, I digressed a little bit there, but there's a to to the left or the right of the um, weight on the top. There is a tiny hole that you have to make sure is clear. And I just remember sitting there watching my dad kind of like clean out the hole with special uh, specialized like straws or something just to make sure it wasn't in there. Because if you don't clean it out and make Bam! sure, that there, yep, you, it explodes. Then you have a huge mess and a huge mess to clean up afterwards. I mean, well, I can't even that's imagine. Danger, I'm assuming too, right? Oh yeah, I'm, I mean, it's it hot could, food in there. Right? It's hot food, and it's. I mean, you could definitely send yourself to the emergency room or even to the morgue if you're not careful. But well, I guess even more so, it's it's compounded by if you're just pressure cooking food. That's one thing. Hot, like above boiling temperature kind of food that's one thing but with if you are actually canning i assume that those glass having seen and witnessed the explosion of of glass from uh pressure inside i can only imagine that it would probably do the same thing out of a pressure cooker and that'd be dangerous very dangerous yeah so i mean it's it's a serious thing i don't we don't i don't want to say that this is something to take lightly but it and again don't think like we don't i don't want to scare you away thinking like you can't do canning at home it just takes Oh, you know, you just have to be really confident in what you're doing and have the right equipment. And sometimes it's worth it to spend a little extra money to get a really good pressure cooker than just to go buy one, just to try it out. Um, th- that's just my two cents. Um, because you're dealing with pressurized, a pressurized container in your kitchen and, um, and you need to be very precise on doing it right because you can get botulism, which is, um, I, one of the advantages of, pressure cooking versus canning because we define those two differently. Pressure cooker canning, correct? Yes. Pressure cooker canning. Um, 
because what the the pressure increases the temperature which is ideal for um some sometimes the bacteria and molds create spores that are really harmful and clostridium botulinum is one of those bacteria that create creates the spore and even if you just boil something it's not going to it'll kill the bacteria itself but the the spores aren't are still there and that's what kills you it's not the bacteria itself it's the spores um because they create a toxin that can get into your once you eat it i think it gets into your bloodstream or something and then you you're pretty much gone in a matter of hours although um, they do have because it's so serious i don't remember I'll put in the link the the botulinum uh, clostridium botulinum episode, but there are centers uh, stationed in the United States at least where a person can still get uh, flighted out and treated generally and survive botulism now just because it is such a serious threat when it does happen. There are only a few specific places, but they can treat it. Because again, it's so rare to actually happen. But yes, if a person, but if you're like, what, isn't it kind of, Looking at some pictures of people with uh, botulism just does not look like it'd be a good way to go or even come close to death because it's like weeks of recovery too, if a person even does survive. So it's definitely not something to screw around with. But if you listen to the Clostridium botulinum episode, hopefully like you see that again, fermentation, that's not an issue because we're not creating an environment that's perfect for Clostridium botulinum, which if a person's just boiling canned uh, vegetables or, or otherwise it without doing the pressure cooking aspect of it or not getting high enough pressure, then they're wiping out all the other bacteria, like you were saying, and then creating a perfect environment for the, uh, for the, 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 the spores of Clostridium botulinum, which perform best in an anaerobic environment free of other bacteria. Whereas fermentation, you're not ever going to get that because the other it's, prolific with, with there's bacteria everywhere and microbes everywhere. So the Clostridium botulinum never can really sporulate or, or get to the point of that. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, I don't think Clostridium botulinum is ubiquitous everywhere. I know that it can be found in soil, but I think that it's also, I, I don't, and someone can email me and tell me if I'm wrong. I don't remember. I'd have to go look in some back into like old microbiology notes but it's not everywhere. Um, so again, that's kind of one of those risks also that you're taking. If you can, or you just do the boiling process and you don't use a pressure cooker, if um, you're taking that risk too of um, getting that botulism um, spore in your food. Do you, do you, I mean, you all have to listen to the botulism episode again, but um, do you remember anything about that? About if a person's not doing high pressure? Or no, if if botulism or the Clostridium botulinum bacteria is everywhere, like no matter what, it's always on your food. But it won't, it, again, you won't be hurt by it because it needs like an anaerobic environment, but it's like has a presence on your food if you as don't wash it. As far as I knew, I, at least, I mean, present in the soil and how long it stays present on things otherwise, I'm not sure how much it does, but especially... It does, uh, as far as I understood from the research that I've done, it, it is prevalent enough, but it's not prevalent in any kind of dangerous amounts. Because again, like you mentioned, the spores are what's important and it's not going to sporulate unless it's in a strained environment, anaerobic, without any other bacteria around that it can proliferate enough in order to be able to get to the point of sporulating. 
um, as far as I understand is kind of the, the basic gist of, of what that is. And it's not really something to be afraid of even with canning, but it is something that just like meat fermentation, another place where botulism comes up, uh, and, and the, the root of the word botulism to begin with, uh, which I don't remember exactly. I think it's with pork and connection of some Latin term or whatnot, but meat fermentation takes a little bit more preparation, a little bit more attention to detail. You could say cheese making to a certain extent too, but I'd say that's kind of somewhere in between. It doesn't, well, especially for beginner cheeses, it's super simple and really not much to worry about at all. But with aging cheeses, as I've had failed attempts, not deadly attempts or dangerous attempts, but just things that didn't work out, there is a lot more to pay attention to versus say vegetable fermentation or, or um, even alcohol fermentation to a, a large extent. There's just not the same kind of danger. So there's not as it's, it's a very easy thing for people to begin with. Whereas pressure cooker canning and meat fermentation are two things that take a little bit more prep work, a little bit more understanding in order not to screw everything up and kill your family or whatnot, whatever the horror stories of botulism are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something serious to talk about, but if you do it right and you, you, you know, dot all your I's and cross all your T's, then you're in the clear. But again, it's not something to take lightly, I guess. I mean, it's pretty serious, um, bacterial infection that is, it can kill you. Yeah. Statistically, even if you're canning every day, I'm sure, I don't know what the statistics would be, but I'm assuming it's probably very low chances of happening, even if you are doing it otherwise, but don't take my word on that. And even still, even if we do more dangerous things like driving cars or otherwise, it still doesn't mean that if we have the opportunity to save ourselves from killing our family or whatnot, then it's probably good to, Mm -hmm. good to follow some, some guidelines. And there are a lot of guidelines, especially for canning, which have become a lot more strict. I was actually surprised to that, uh, over the last 20 years, it's really, or more so it's become, you know, the USDA and elsewhere. I mean, there's, there's courses on canning, by a lot of extensions of universities or whatnot. And I, uh, I just know that before people used to even do things like for making preserves, they would be scooping different aspect uh, or different preserves into a jar when they're hot and then sealing the jar and then not even actually boiling it at all or whatnot. And I don't know how dangerous that actually is, but that's not even uh, that's frowned upon and or not recommended at all anymore anyway. So like canning has, changed a lot over time, but getting back just real quick to the aspect of what it was that thinking about beforehand, what is it that doesn't interest me in canning as much as fermentation? And I think there uh, that I've kind of clarified it a little bit is for one, it, it canning is a, is a pretty modern invention. Not that that rules it out as being interesting. It's also a very Western, um, in, in concept of, of creating these this way of preserving food. And I think for myself, I'm really drawn to fermentation because for one, it's a very ancient technology and it's worldwide. All kinds of different fermentations have happened throughout history and have happened that have all kind of happened in isolation at different points. And we've have all these crazy different kinds of flavors, whereas canning is a pretty straightforward. Sure. You can, you can mix things up and change flavors to a certain extent, but especially when you're talking about a lot of vegetables, just putting vinegar in the complexity of flavor just isn't the same. Some of these things can taste really good. And I, I like it if someone else wants to go to the effort of making those, but for myself, like fermentation is where it's at because the complexity, the potential and the, the vast quantity of knowledge 
that is out there. And sadly, a lot of it's probably been lost too, but like that, that people are rediscovering or in as Harold McGee's article that talked about at the beginning of the article, looking at how these different ferments that have been fermented in isolation around the world, how now we have people coming uh, and exploring these different things and using say an Asian ferment technology, such as using um, aspergillus molds for fermenting things and then applying those to more Western ingredients. And then what kind of flavors come out of those? And there just seems to be a lot more of experimentation and flavor complexity and experience available with fermentation. And that doesn't to rule out the importance of canning, especially if a person's looking to preserve things because canning will preserve things for a longer period of time than fermentation. Most say vegetable fermentations or whatnot, it will preserve them, but whether or not they're likable or edible, fermentation won't last as long as canning. So there are things that are great about canning. It's just one of those things that I'd, I, I definitely love it when someone else I know can something, but it's not something that, that I'm as interested in to, Mm -hmm. to create. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's true. I mean, canning itself is pretty cut and dry. I mean, you follow the directions and you end up with preserved food. Um, but fermentation does have a different way of creating these different flavors and you can manipulate it in a different way to get a different end result. You can use different types of salts. Um, you can use time. I mean, whatever you're as, as far as your heart is content with any type of food for the most part. Um, and I think that there's just more science and artistry that's involved in fermentation. Cause like, as you said, people are using aspergillus, um, the mold that's used for, you know, making sake and, um, soy sauce and also that kind of stuff, very Asian influenced foods and using them to, um, what I can't remember off the top of my head, but the, um, Norwegian or the Denmark, um, the Nordic, uh, the, the Nordic food lab. Using the Nordic food lab. Yeah. They were using something with, um, aspergillus to create, I, I don't remember what it was, but it was something that was so they've done piso. Not... They've done like uh, miso made with peas. They've done, uh, yeah. soy sauce so- or fish sauce made with grasshoppers. I mean, they've done a lot of different things that are Asian inspired, which only recently the has come into the Western under lexicon and, and comprehension of, Oh, we can kind of do these kind of things. Like it's, it's very recent. So, it's just, it's fascinating. I mean, and maybe canning will spread to other parts of the world in, in a few hundred years or a thousand years. Canning will be super hip and cool and come back into um, something exciting and, and be something way different than what we know now. But it's such an isolated thing that it compared to it, it's just like the fermentation is just, um, I would say, blowing up in possibilities. You know, 2014, another year of fermentation. It's like, you know, I mean, different places say those kind of things, but I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities out there and things are potentially going to continue to expand and knowledge continue and expand. Whereas I'd say canning is, is popular and, um, utilitarian and important, but I guess I'll be surprised if in 2014 it becomes something transformative, like the transformation of fermentation. Yeah, I don't think it's really going to change much even in the next 200 years. It's pretty, again, cut and dry. Like, um, can't really change too many flavors in canning. But again, someone proved me wrong. Um, But I'm glad we covered this topic because I think it's really important to kind of differentiate the um, canning versus fermentation and how that kind of fits into our history of food. 
because it wasn't canning and preserving food that way is is a modern method. It was it's only been around since 1810 and wasn't even popular until the 1900s or right. wasn't even accessible for a large portion of the population. And again, we're still talking a very Western population of, of uh, European and American um, influence that it was even accessible to for a very long time. So yeah, it's, it's very, very young, but still fascinating. I think it's more fascinating to look at the history of it than to actually do it for myself. And I'm not, I'm not knocking any, I, again, I know fermentation and canning, they cross paths a lot and a lot of people do both. And I would love to hear what other people like about canning and maybe prove something wrong about, I mean, maybe there are, maybe there are more fascinating things about canning and we'll be happy to share and follow up with uh, any ideas that people have about, about canning and what makes it so amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think that we've pretty much covered the basics of canning. If there's any sort of information that we've missed, um, I would love to hear from anyone. They can email us. Yeah. You can send us an email at podcast at firmup.com and should we wrap up? Yeah, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Um, then, then yeah, then then get that email there or Twitter at FirmUp, Facebook at FirmUp, Pinterest at FirmUp, Google Plus at Plus FirmUp, and you can find us anywhere at FirmUp. And until next time, FirmUp!